Paul Volcker is a giant of global finance, literally and figuratively. At six feet seven inches or about two meters tall, he towered over most everyone around him. And as chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1980s and in countless other roles in public service, he made his mark on the world. Now, at age 91, he's published a new memoir called Keeping at It, and his collaborator happens to be one of our Bloomberg colleagues, Christine Harper. This week on Benchmark, we'll talk with Christine about why he wrote the book and what it was like to work with him. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. We're joined by Christine Harper, editor of Bloomberg Markets magazine. She's been a reporter and editor with Bloomberg for 20 years. I first met Christine in the early aughts in the London office when she was wrestling with stories about Merrill Lynch's bond desk. (laughs) We're recording this on Tuesday. The book, Keeping At It, should be available wherever you buy good books. Christine, welcome to Benchmark. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. Christine, congratulations on the book. How did you come to work with Paul Volcker on it? Well, really just a hugely lucky break. Unlike the two of you, I'm not an economics expert, as you know. I um, have been covering the financial industry here for a long time at Bloomberg. And I happen to know a man named Peter Osnos, who runs a publishing firm called Public Affairs. He's quite close to Paul Volcker, having having published Mr. Volcker's book in uh, 1992 called Changing Fortunes. So Peter called me up one day and said that Paul Volcker was interested in writing a memoir. But at that point, he was about to turn 90. And Peter, who's been in publishing for a long time, thought it might make sense to have somebody work with him. And it might make most sense if it was somebody in New York City who could easily get back and forth to Paul's office and um, to his home to work with him. So was I interested? And I said, let me think about it for one day and pretty quickly realized this was a once in a lifetime opportunity, even though I'd never written a book and I wasn't an expert in economics. I couldn't imagine there was any downside in getting to spend time with Paul Volcker and learn all his stories and just see what that was like. So um, that's what I did. And uh, and I think Peter's view was that there'd be some kind of chemistry that we'd work well together. I'm not really sure why he had that insight, but it proved to be correct. Paul didn't know me from Adam. When he was introduced to me, he immediately was very friendly and very you know willing to work with me. And we started having regular meetings where I would record these interviews with him with the thought being that I would eventually take the transcripts and blend them all into a book. But of course, you know, even though he was kind of in and out of the hospital with various health issues, he ended up started churning out pages and pages on a yellow pad of basically the manuscript and having his assistant type them up. And I looked at them, I said, wow, these are really good, keep going. So I would get these emailed files, his assistant would, you know, send them along to me and I would work with... uh, Paul and them, and he was just great. And I kept waiting for him to become, in some way, you know, difficult or domineering or stubborn or something. And he was—he never was. We just had a great time. I never went to a meeting with him, and we—we—we've been meeting now for more than a year, several times a week. I never left a meeting with him not feeling happier than when I went into it. He's just a wonderful guy, and 
I learn so much every every meeting. Okay. Now, twice in that answer, you've uh, mentioned that you're not an economics expert. You don't have a background in economics. I think you're selling yourself a little short here. You have run finance reporting at Bloomberg News. But to the core of that question, did that make your role easier or harder, not having formal qualifications in economics? I think it was probably a little bit of both. So I I didn't have the familiarity with some of the um, stories that both of you, I'm sure, would have had. So I had to do more research to understand them. But I also sort of forced him to explain things that maybe somebody who was very comfortable with economics wouldn't have needed explained and might have been just more willing to fall into sort of a jargony insider voice. Um, that said, he his natural inclination is to be pretty plain spoken. So a lot of the a lot of the book is very readable just because he writes in a very readable way. He's, he doesn't like to um, to use jargon. He really doesn't. I mean. I don't. I don't know if. It, can I tell the story about how we came up with the title? Go for it. Okay. So we really struggled with the title, <laughs> and it was very telling about him because we were coming up with all these titles that sounded like, you know, the titles of a great man's book. You know, um, Mr. Chairman, and th- you know, things with great sort of august themes. And he couldn't stand that. He really was opposed to anything that sounded pompous. He didn't want anything like. For instance, Ben Bernanke's book *The Courage to Act*. He was allergic to that type of tone in his in in, in a book title. So we kept going back and forth. And there's a story. If you read the book, there, he starts out with a joke, and the joke is about a parrot. And so he wanted the title to be, and he was quite serious with this. He wanted the title to be *The Wise Parrot Speaks*. And the publisher and I and everybody around him sort of said, well, that's very funny, but I don't think anybody will understand it. They don't really necessarily recognize what that's about. And he said, yeah, but that'll, that'll intrigue people. People will buy it. Anyway, so we had a lot of, we had a lot of uh, discussion. This was probably the most difficult thing. And then finally one day I said, well, there's this phrase in some of the minutes, sustained commitment, which I think sort of sums up your d- description of your life and your fight against inflation. And he looked at me and said, keeping at it. And I realized, like, that's the simplest way to say sustained commitment. So that that became the title. So he gave up on The Wise Parrot Speaks and uh, gracefully (laughs) suggested the title that we have now. Um, I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious also, Christine, you know, some more about the collaboration process that you were starting to go into you know, I, I think he refers to in his book that 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 you were checking and, and rechecking some of his anecdotes. I mean, as someone in his forties now, I think it would be difficult for me to write my own memoir. And yet, at age ninety-one, he was recalling things from his childhood. You know, all sorts of events early in his life, a lot of his work life in the fifties and sixties at the Treasury and the, and the Fed. How were you able to? you know, to flesh out some of these stories that he told. Well, one thing that's so remarkable about his life is almost every chapter, there are stories that have entire books written about them. So my my home office right now is stacked from, from sort of floor to ceiling with various books, which in many cases are just to sort of do more research on a few paragraphs in one chapter of his book. So, you know, I just went to find any kind of source material I could. There a lot of it was, and you'll, if you look at the notes, a lot of it is looking back at news articles from the time, 
You know, there are great archives on the New York Times website, for instance, which really help. And then newspapers.com, things like that, where you can find news articles about events as they were happening. And, and that's a, that was a pretty helpful way to check things. Many people would recognize Volcker as the central banker that broke the back of inflation of in the United States. How comfortable is he with this kind of canonization? Well, I, I, he appreciates that the fact that people um, sometimes still come up to him on the street and thank him for what he did. He's humbled by it, but he's grateful. And he feels so strongly about serving the country that to know that he's done something that people feel made a difference, I think, matters a lot to him. I think he's constantly coming up with new things he wants to fix in the country, and he's also quite humble about ways in which he failed to do things. I mean, a lot of the beginning of the book is about his failure to basically create an international monetary system in the in, once Bretton Woods broke down, and he was really he was really upset about that. So um, there's a combination in the book of I think him telling the sort of heroic story of Paul Volcker, which you can't avoid but admit is heroic in many respects, but also being quite self-critical at, at points. He doesn't always come off as an amazing superhero. Do circumstances create the man or does the man shape the circumstances? Would anyone serving as chair of the Fed, given the inflation landscape at the time, have taken the steps he took? Well, that's an interesting thing that he likes to talk about. So obviously he followed two Fed chairmen who didn't take the action that was required. When he was brought in, the problem was so acute that he felt that he had great support in doing things that were very difficult. So he he does sort of admit that as much as he gets credit for being strong and fighting back against politicians who wanted to impeach him, he always felt there was this reserve of public support for him because things had gotten so bad and they were at such a point of crisis. So, um, however, I mean, he did have to be very clever in how he did that. And there's a section in how he, where he describes the decision to target the money supply as effectively sort of lashing the Fed to the mast. They had no choice but to follow through. And that inoculated him against some criticisms because he could say, well, we're just looking at the money supply. We're sorry. He, and he admits if, if he had ever been told interest rates were going to go up to 20%, he might have just run away immediately. But he sort of, he sort of created a system where he almost had, a, had an ability and the Fed had an ability to say, it's out of our hands. We're just, we're just looking at something else. Interest rates are not under our control anymore. We'll get back to the issue of targets in a minute. Sure. It seems like, Christine, that you know there, there are so many interesting stories about his early life and his childhood, and one of them in there may even have informed his thinking when he was at the Fed in the late 70s without him even knowing it. And it seems like it that, that comes from um, his mother's economics textbook that he found from all the way back in 1911 and the notes she wrote in the margins. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Part of the story. Yeah, this is a this is this was an amazing uh, discovery. I mean, we talked a lot in the book about his father and the influence his father and his father's career in public service had on Paul. But what was really interesting was 
right at towards the end when the, we'd already actually put out the galley version of the book and we were making final corrections to it. I was at his home and I was looking through. He has this room with, this, you know, bookcases all around the room. And I was looking for a book that he said I could find somewhere. And I found another book. And it was this tiny little hardbound volume, which was printed in, in the early 1900s. It was, it was his, his mother's Vassar economics textbook from 1911. It had a lot of her handwriting in it. All, all the margins were covered with her handwriting. And including on page eight, I think, there was a sentence where she had scrawled, economic laws cannot be depended upon if we disregard psychology, etc. And I showed this to him, and he was, first of all, he was just dumbfounded. He'd forgotten he had it. It reminded him that his mother had been, I guess, really passionate about economics, studying it before the Fed was created in 1911. Anyway, he, he had completely forgotten how much his mother cared about economics, and also that people were having this insight about the importance of psychology even before he sort of feels that he had that insight during his career at the Fed and the understanding that you had to find a simple way to communicate with the public about what you were doing and the money supply was the way to do it. His appointment in 1979 by Jimmy Carter can also be seen as the start of the quote-unquote modern era in central banking. Uh, Thereafter, inflation, not so much of a problem, but also the idea of policy and the controversy that it's sometimes courted being associated with a single figure. And it sort of helps that he's this towering guy. Do you think Carter knew what he was getting into when Volcker was appointed? How big a job was the Federal Reserve chairman back in the day? Well, he describes how there was a lot of controversy he knows about appointing him. And there was a camp in the Carter White House that was very opposed to appointing him because they recognized he would be independent. They wouldn't be able to control him. He was likely to raise interest rates a lot. That was not going to be good for Carter and his reelection chances, and they were right. But there were obviously other voices that persuaded him. It was important he was going to be popular on Wall Street, for instance, and and Carter realized the problems were so bad he couldn't get anything done that he had to deal with this inflation problem and basically took a bullet, basically agreed to do this, and it was one of the things that perhaps cost him re-election. But yes, so you have this Fed chairman who's got the a willingness of the president and also his successor, Ronald Reagan, who supported him publicly all the time, to do what, what needed to be done. And uh, and he did it. And that was a big difference because a lot of other Fed chairmen had, had I mean, Arthur Burns had a great, you know, he was a very well-respected figure. He was very uh, well-known, but he just didn't do what was required. Through the 80s, when you and I were growing up, there was a narrative that the Carter years were sort of a shorthand for American weakness and Mm -hmm. American failure. That view, you know, has come under some scrutiny lately, 
and President Carter looks better with sure. a couple of decades hindsight. How does Volcker feel about President Carter? Oh, well, so early in our discussions, early in our meetings, he was reading the early version of Stuart Eisenstadt's book about Carter. Mm, and right. there's a big chapter in there about Volcker. And uh, and he was very pleased by that, you know, because Stuart Eisenstadt was one of those people who opposed Volcker back in the day. He was, you know, more on the liberal wing. He was afraid about high interest rates. But now, in hindsight, recognize, recognizes that one of the great things that President Carter did was name Paul Volcker. And President Carter has always said that as well. So... I think, you know, obviously Paul Volcker loves that, and uh, and I think he really respects Carter and, and his willingness to do the difficult things um, and and sort of the way he also has behaved in his post-presidency. He, he sees him as a really great public servant who hasn't quite gotten his due. He recognizes that he made mistakes, and there are reasons that, you know, Reagan was able to achieve things that Carter wasn't. But, you know, I think he, he considers Carter one of the presidents he admires, for sure. Sounds like he thinks Carter is still underrated. Yes, I would say that's true. Christine, in the 30 years since Volcker uh, left the chairmanship of the Fed, he's rarely sat still. He he served on many uh, public commissions, reparations for Nazi victims, the, uh, the Obama uh, financial regulation initiative that eventually became the Volcker Rule. He even expresses some bemusement that his name always became attached to these commissions like the Volcker Commission, the Volcker this, the Volcker that. Does any of these, do any of these particular roles stand out for him as the most memorable or the most important in his post-Fed career? Uh, Well, I mean, he talks about how Pretty much the first thing he left he, he left to do uh, after leaving the Fed was um, to serve on a national commission for public service, and then he immediately served on another one. And he has devoted his career in the last few years to a, an organization called the Volcker Alliance, which is trying to improve public service. So I think that, above all, is the thing that he cares about the most. Obviously, these other things, trying to end corruption, is incredibly important to him, and he feels very proud of what they did um, with getting some money back for the families of Holocaust victims. Um, but you know, the thing that thing that really strikes me about all of that is that he he did a lot of these very difficult, very controversial jobs that required somebody of great integrity, and he wouldn't take money for that. And I sort of mentioned this to him while we were working on the book. Like, Should we mention you didn't take money? He said no. So we don't even have that in the book. But he he really felt that it was important to do, and he didn't want to get remunerated for it. I want to get back to this issue of his chairmanship and the dawn of the modern central bank. I mean, again, partly helped by the breaking of inflation and the fact that Volcker is physically a very big guy. Do you think that the cult of personality surrounding many central bankers in the world today is a good thing? And more importantly, does Volcker think it's a good thing? Well, I, I, I don't think we ever talked about the cult of personality, but I'll tell you a few things that he'd, he'd said that's sort of connected to that. One is that it bothers him that he's sometimes criticized for being having been secretive at the Fed. And he will point out that there was one year he testified in front of Congress something like 34 times. He felt he was on things like the Sunday morning meet the press shows, which you don't see the Fed chairman do anymore. He was very out there. So it bothers him that he's sort of sometimes tagged with this secrecy thing. He also 
feels very strongly that it's helpful to have central bankers who aren't just academic economists. He he reserves a little bit of scorn for the academic economists in the book. Um, things like econometrics, he's not a fan of. Well, he talks about how how he was uh, going to get his PhD, but right. then kept putting it off and putting it off. Yeah, yeah. He never he never did his dissertation, and he really feels what he what he learned about. Uh, economics that served him well was understanding the psychology of the market from sitting on the trading desk at the New York Fed and from being at Chase for two stints in his early career and working in the Treasury Department. So he is very supportive of having people at the Fed who aren't just academic economists. So I'd say, you know, the current Fed chairman who served in Treasury, served in business, he's, he likes that about him. Uh, that's what I would say more than anything. He He thinks you should have people who really understand the, the markets in the real world. Christine, on a lighter note, I learned some new words in this book, and there was one in particular on page 109 called disabile. Uh, I guess it's a French word, and it means the state of being dressed only partially or in nightclothes. And know, uh, doesn't used... that make the book sound sexy? Don't you want to it... run, run out and buy it? Now? I always <laughs> tell people that central banking is sexy, but is. nobody believes me. It's he... full of words like that. <laughs> doesn't really use it in a in a sexy way. He's using hey. it to refer to some people protesting the Fed's monetary policy. But I understand that that he he did have a very fascinating vocabulary. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, there, one thing that was interesting to me as sort of the professional writer who came into this exercise and him being a you know c- central banker and, and government official was how often I would come across these words that he would use that I'd say, wow, that's an interesting, unusual word. And I'd I'd look it up, and and he'd he'd nail it. He'd find that he'd find these uses of words that I wouldn't. And I I did look in this book because I wanted to talk about it. I couldn't find any quick examples, but that's a good one. The disabile. We had a whole debate about whether that was really the right word. We looked it up in various dictionaries. But uh, he cared immensely about word choice, and he would go back and forth and come up with exactly. You know, we'd we'd discuss what is the best word to describe this person. You know, and he, and when you read Fed minutes, you see how much of the discussion often comes down to how do we communicate this particular idea and what what wording should we use in the statement? Because so much about how central bankers communicate and and do their job is through word choice and and writing and 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 communications. and and so so he does have this gift for language, which I, I hadn't really anticipated when I went into it. I've written thousands of words about one or two words in the Fed statement. I can, I can exactly. definitely agree with that. Exactly. On the subject of the minutes, back to the transparency issue, it is also true. We've become accustomed to minutes of each Federal Open Market Committee meeting coming out three weeks after that meeting. That didn't used to be the case and certainly was not the case in the Volcker era. Right. No, and actually in his early years, I mean, or actually through his career, they never they never stated what the Fed funds rate was going to be. They would state what they were doing to the money supply. And people in the market were paid a lot of money to try to figure out what the Fed funds rate was going to going to do. And it's only more recently. And he and he's not completely convinced that that's better. You know, so there's some ways in which this transparency has gone maybe beyond what he thinks is right. And he and he admits maybe he's wrong. Maybe it's just he's used to the way it was. But he th- thought there was a certain flexibility they had in not having to come right out and say, here's what the Fed funds rate is going to be. Now, he reserves some special scrutiny for a very small country uh, on the far side of the world. And 
I'm not talking about Australia. I am talking about the place right next door. What is his bugaboo with New Zealand? Well, his bugaboo is not so much with New Zealand, which he commends for its excellent fishing. But he talks in the end of the book about this idea of targeting 2% inflation, which as somebody who fought inflation, he doesn't like the idea of trying to create inflation of any number. And so it puzzles him and frustrates him that everybody's obsessed with trying to get inflation up to 2%. Getting inflation up is is anathema to him. Does he have a problem with down? (laughs) No, he's for down. He's for down. He's for lower inflation, no inflation. But he, so he has this whole section, which um, we ran on Bloomberg Opinion as well, about how that number came to be, how the, where the 2% come from. And he said he thinks it's from the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which decided they needed to take drastic action on inflation back in the early 90s, late 80s. And um, they set a 2% target and got there and found it was a very effective means of fighting inflation. And so it's been adopted by other countries. Now, these targets have proliferated. Yes. I mean, the U.S. has a version of 2%. Yes. European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, Sweden, you name it, far and wide. How much do these numerical targets and the almost sacramental quality that they've taken on hinder good policy? Well, in his view, greatly. The policy should be you know, it's kind of the difference between principles-based uh, regulation and rules-based regulation, which is another bugaboo of his. He likes things to be based on principles. You know, let's let's have inflation that doesn't, you know, inf- price stability. It, you know, you know when prices are reasonably stable because they don't affect business or consumer decisions. That's what he wants. He doesn't like this idea of being so precise on the numbers because he thinks it's ridiculous. The data is not that precise. And there's this kind of false belief in precision that uh, troubles him. Christine, just wanted to wrap up with a couple final questions here. You know, there's this sense of public service undercurrent of his commitment to good government, like like you were talking about, that, that really runs throughout the book. And yet, you know, someone might think, is this a screed against Donald Trump? And it's it's really not. The words Donald Trump only appear once in the book. The, the Trump administration has mentioned only a handful of times, even even positively, uh, once or twice. And Volcker says several times he's often labeled as a Democrat, but he actually gave up his political affiliation many decades ago, and and he really tries to be apolitical. And yet, and yet, we can sense that he's really no big fan of President Trump. Why did he not go any further in this book? Well, he, at his root, does not believe in being political. His father was an apolitical city manager who executed excellent management of the city of Teaneck, New Jersey, and helped turn it around. And it, as Fed chairman, he didn't think he should be political. He spent so much of his career in the, in the Fed. He served under Democrats and Republicans. He doesn't think that the issues for him are about which party is in office. It's really about, are they running things well? How can it be better, effective government? And so to the degree that the Trump administration is not effective and is not running things well, he's obviously unhappy. But he also sees that there have been other administrations, both Democratic and Republican, who have done, done the same. And he, he specifically calls out Ronald Reagan for having started this kind of language about government being the problem that has infiltrated our 
our discourse in this country and reduce the trust in government. You know, looking back over old magazine covers, uh, Volcker is often uh, pictured surrounded by these clouds of smoke. Now, were they from cigars? Were they from pipes? Uh, What did he like to smoke? And it's inconceivable we would see that today. Does he think society has become too sanitized? (laughs) No, actually. I mean, most of the photos you'll see in stock photography of him are him with this big cigar. He was famous for his cheap cigars. He'd never liked to smoke expensive cigars because he, you know, was very frugal at heart. And so... I actually persuaded him to include a few, a short little section on his cigars because he has an interesting story about how he decided to quit right around the time he left the Fed. And he really is so glad he quit and feels so guilty, actually, for subjecting so many people to the cigar smoke for so long. It was, I think, in part a prop. You know, it helped calm him down. He... uh, recognizes that society's changed. He's in no way trying to persuade anybody to smoke cigars. (laughs) Christine, finally, this book was actually not supposed to come out for a few more weeks. The publisher moved it up to uh, the end of October. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision? Yes, that was uh, pretty unusual for the publisher, and we're grateful they were able to do that. Paul's pretty sick. He was in great shape and still going to the office until mid-August and, you know, really worked hard, 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 often staying later in the office than his assistant or I would, working away on his draft and uh, taking the bus and going to uh, fishing trips and things like that. And then in August, he was diagnosed with pretty serious illness. So he's been, he's been home and he's, you know, fighting this and, you know, He's 91, so he's he's doing his best to keep going. Keeping at it, so to speak. Exactly. All right. Christine Harper, editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine and collaborator with Paul Volcker on the new book, Keeping At It. Uh, we're very grateful that you were able to join us on Benchmark. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more people can find us. You can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. I'm at Scott Landman. And Christine, you are... CR underscore Harper. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forhez. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 